Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. And glad you're with us for this edition of On DoD. And on our program this time, a good long discussion on the subject of defense reform. Our guest is retired Major General Arnold Panaro, a name obviously well known in the defense community and certainly to anyone who's paid attention to reform issues over the years. General Panaro is just out with a new book called The Ever-Shrinking Fighting Force. And the title's reference to shrinkage there is not about the defense budget. As we'll talk about, in inflation-adjusted terms, the DoD budget is bigger now than it was during the peak of the Reagan era, but we're getting a lot less for it. What's shrinking, despite more spending, is force structure and end strength. Pinaro argues there are three main drivers for that, and the book offers some suggestions for what to do about it. So, General, thanks for being with us, and and let's talk about the book. And and just just to set this up for our listeners, it's you know this is almost a compendium or distillation of various other pieces of advice and observations that you've made to defense policymakers and leaders over the years, some in an official and some in an unofficial capacity. So so start us off, if you would, by just talking a bit about the experiences that you've had over the decades that, that formed the basis for this book. Well, Jared, it's always a privilege to be with you and your listeners. And it really got started for me Uh, When I graduated in 1968, which was the peak year of the draft, and I ended up being a United States Marine and an infantry platoon commander in Vietnam and served with a lot of young Marines that uh, were drafted and did everything their country asked them to do. And it weighed in on me quite heavily that we always need to be prepared uh, for our national security and to make sure our troops have everything they need. Because I'll tell you, during the Vietnam War, Uh, we didn't have a lot of things that we needed to have, you know, on the battlefield. And I fortunately went to work in the U.S. Senate uh, for Senator Sam Nunn and was there 24 years. And most of my career, we were working to try to make sure we had what we needed for national defense, including in the very grim decade of the 70s when there was such an anti-war sentiment trying to save the volunteer force. So most of my career and then in industry has spent trying to make sure we have a strong national defense. And then when I looked at it and kind of looked back here over a 45 to 50 year career, both in uniform and government and industry, uh, working as a formal and informal advisor to the Congress and to the Pentagon. And I looked at the amount of money that we were spending. And I looked at the fact that in my judgment, we were not getting the bang for the buck we should for the dollars we're spending. And we are in the exact same situation we were when I was on the in the Quezon Mountains in Vietnam, and my troops didn't have hot chow, they didn't have enough food, they didn't have dry socks. Uh, Some days we didn't have the ammunition that we needed. Uh, Here we are going up against the pacing threat of China uh, that's dramatically improved their military, they've improved their technology, they're on the march economically and uh, diplomatically, and we are spending in constant dollars more than we spent at the peak of the Reagan buildup and yet the force is 50% smaller in terms of active duty, 1 million less active duty personnel. The war fighting units, we have 30 to 5 to 40% fewer than we had at the peak of the Reagan buildup. Whether you look at what we call constant dollars, as you know these terms and your least listeners know them very well, take out the inflation, do apples to apples, we're up about 10% and the force is down 50%. In inflated dollars, we're up about 150% and the force is down 50%. And so that was the reason I said, you know what? I've written a lot about this over the years 
And I've tried very, very hard in a lot of venues to try to improve and reform uh, the processes that we have in the Pentagon and the Congress, which are flat broke. They're just broken. And it's not the people. The people that come to work in the Pentagon on the Hill and in industry, they come to work every day doing the absolute best job they can for our war fighters and the taxpayers. Former Secretary of Defense Bill Perry told me once, bad processes beat good people every day. And we have a proliferation of broken processes in the Pentagon and the Congress. And I said, enough is enough. You know, I've got nine soon to have 10 grandkids. Um, when I look at what China's doing, when I hear what General Milley and General Dunford say, when I hear what people that are on the China Commission say, and I realize how far we're falling behind, I just felt compelled uh, to put it all in, in a book and get it out there. Yeah, and one of the reasons I wanted to start with some of that historical context is one of the striking things in the book is that even if the problems are extremely difficult to solve when you put them all together, they're at least well understood, right? I mean, you mentioned a few times that, that a lot of these blue ribbon panels and defense reform commissions over the years have kind of reached pretty similar conclusions. That's correct. And the great Louisiana senator that was head of the finance committee, Russell Long, once told my boss, Senator Nunn, Sam, don't solve a problem for people before they know they have one. Well, everybody knows what the problems are in defense. It's a acquisition process where we spend close to $400 billion a year. And about all you can say about it is spend more, take longer, get less. It's DOD's massive overhead and support structure, which gone from 5% of the budget to almost 20%. If you add in all the things that really belong to defense-wide, it's probably another 10% higher um, and you could go on and on. So people know the problems. They agree with the problems. There's a bipartisan agreement that we've got to deal with China. So we've just got to kind of tighten our belts and take a deep breath and, and get on with, with the reforms that are necessary so that we can get the capabilities that we need for our warfighters, both to deter our adversaries, but also if we get into a shooting war, which we never can predict and we never want to be in again. But unfortunately, history doesn't give us that luxury We've got to be ready to win on the battlefield. Yeah, and, and you break down the the problems into what I think is a pretty useful rubric, those those three things that you alluded to, overhead, growing fully burdened personnel costs, and, and the acquisition system. Let's start with overhead. And as, as you acknowledge, there's really no commonly accepted definition of what overhead is, but you make a pretty good case and, and arrive at some estimates, at least, of, of, of what the department is spending on overhead. Talk with us just a couple minutes about how you define overhead and how big it really is, you think. For me, it's pretty simple. And you're right. There is an agreement and people argue about it and they want to fine tune it. But look, I come from the business world now and you're either on direct or you're on indirect. If you're on direct, that means you're billing somebody for your time. If you're on indirect, that means you're overhead and somebody else is, you know, you're, you're not paying your way. And so for me, if you're not on the war fighting side of the Department of Defense, if you're not on the tip of the spear, then you're in the back of the rear with the gear, you're overhead and your support. And it's pretty fundamental. And, and even by DOD's own definition, they would argue that 43% or over $300 billion of the annual budget is kind of in the support, not forces. And so to me, anything that's not on the war fighting side at the tip of the spear to me is overhead and support. And if you just take their own definition and you look at the headquarters and you look at the Office of the Secretary of Defense, you look at the joint staff, you look at the defense agencies where they've gone from one defense agency when it first started, the National Security Agency, we now have 28. 
And those are massive, massive organizations like the Defense Logistics Agency. So that's kind of my definition. We have, Jared, we have over 300,000 active duty military, which are our most expensive personnel, our most highly trained and our most valuable that are working in positions that are inherently non-governmental. That means those jobs could be done by a defense civilian or a defense contractor. And frankly, many of them probably don't even need to be done. That's, that's a lot of people that we could move from the back offices to the war fighting side of the military. And again, I define war fighting. If you're a cyber warrior, if you're operating a lethal drone, you're a war fighter. So I'm not kind of, you know, the business executives for national security, when they look at this, they are a lot less charitable about what they call the split, the 60-40 split. They, they think the, the, the back office stuff is much closer to over 50% of everything DOD does. So to me, you're either on the warfighting side of the house or you're in the rear of the gear. One of the things that the book does a nice job of is, is giving a lot of historical context and, and pointing out, for example, the joint staff did not always have 5,000 employees. There were not always right. 40,000 people assigned to combatant commands. Give us your best sense of how that kind of accretion happens over time. And it's not because of malice. It's not because people are trying to waste money. How does it, how does it happen? Well, you know, you, that's a terrific observation. And the way I try to explain it, and I, I struggle with this because you wonder, because these are these are really, these are a lot of warfighters. And, and I say about the warfighters, out in the field, they're magnificent warriors. When they get back in the rear, they become magnificent bureaucrats. And it's a lot like the vine in my old home state of Georgia we call kudzu. And years ago, decades ago, the Soil and Erosion Service brought this vine in to, to stop erosion of the soil. What they didn't know is it became one of the most noxious weeds ever produced, and then they banned it completely because it, we called it the vine that ate the South, and it would swallow up buildings and telephone poles and roads. So what happens is, just like Farstall, when he first started OSD, he had maybe 40 people, not the over 5,000 they have today, it just, it's like kudzu. It starts growing, it starts encumbering, it starts smothering everything. And so, you know, they add a little bit at a time. They don't add it all at one time. And so it's just this inexorable climb of overhead, layers of management, you know, the over 30 layers of management from a junior accident officer in a military department to the top of the Pentagon. In the Pentagon, it's so hierarchical. If you have a three-star, he's going to have two two-stars working for them. Each two-star is going to have two one-stars. Each one-star is going to have two colonels and go on. You have this pyramid. So the bureaucracy, like kudzu, just grows over time until it just suffocates uh, the organization. And so I think we need to just clean all that out. And we need to, and you look at the acquisition area. We've got over 154,000 people now working in acquisition. And we've got rules and regulations 50,000, 75,000 pages. And, and we think that we're going to be able to move with speed and innovation with that kind of regulation and bureaucracy. If you look at, for example, in the old days, from contract to, to operational, our tactical jet fighters, it took about five years. It now takes 30 years. Guess who's now doing it in five years? China. Guess at what commercial industry does when they have a, a new airplane? It's under five years. A new automobile? It's under five years. And so our Department of Defense has allowed itself to get out of sync with the world that we live in, and they focus on inputs. Everybody's yelling and screaming about, oh, the top line's got to go up. We need another 3%. We need another 5%. My argument is 
we need to focus more on what we get for what we spend, not how much we spend. And so we've got to change the output focus in the Department of Defense so that we do everything better, faster and cheaper than China. Talking with Arnold Pinaro, retired Marine Corps Major General and former Staff Director of the Senate Armed Services Committee, among many other former titles. We're talking about his new book, The Ever-Shrinking Fighting Force. We'll be back to talk more after a short break. This is On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbin. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu, and we're talking with retired Major General Arnold Pinaro about his new book, The Ever Shrinking Fighting Force. The main thesis is that the defense budget has been growing, but what we're getting for it is shrinking. And as we've been talking about, he thinks there are three main drivers for that cost growth personnel costs, bureaucratic overhead, and the acquisition system. Let's stick with acquisition a bit since you brought it up. Um, it's also a very well-studied problem, um, and there have been actually some reforms in various NDAAs over the past five years. How far have those gone toward fixing the more systemic problems that you see in the acquisition system, and, and how much more needs to be done? Well, certainly there's been no lack of trying in the Congress and in the Pentagon to try to reform the acquisition process. People work at it. It's a life's work. You know, you'll never, you'll never get it done. And, and I would say, you know, over the years, Bill Perry tackled it when he was Secretary of Defense. Carl Levin and John McCain tackled it. John McCain and Mac Thornberry tackled it. Jack Reed and Inhofe. And, and in the last couple of administrations, between Ash Carter, Frank Kendall, and Ellen Ward, they made a lot of good progress, like you said. But the point is, it's not how far we've come, it's how far we still have to go. If you look at the big picture output, for example, in Navy shipbuilding, the shipbuilding budget has gone up 70% and the number of ships we buy has gone down 70%. If you look at the cost, the light, I remember when Norm Augustine wrote Augustine's Laws and he predicted decades ago, the, the cost of weapon systems is going up so rapidly, we're gonna get to the point where we can only afford one tank, one ship, one plane, one truck. And people just laugh. Well, guess what? We're pretty close to that right now at the same time, Chuck Spinney, who was working in PA&E, put out a study that said, and guess what? The life cycle and sustainability cost of these more expensive weapon systems is going to just dwarf and, and, and eat our lunch. And he got derided by everybody. And guess what? Unfortunately, it's now true. If you look at the unit cost of, of the F-15 or the F-16 and their life cycle cost compared to the F-22 of the Joint Strike Fighter, if you look at the acquisition costs and the operating costs of the Nimitz carriers versus the Ford carriers, you know, and yeah, these, these modern systems are better, but guess what? When our adversaries are producing the same kind of systems and they're almost just as good or in some cases better, and they have more units than we have, you know, the Chinese Navy is now larger than the U.S. Navy. And it's not something we can just say, oh, well, they're, you know, kind of like the Girl Scouts are not that good. Guess what? Nobody's saying that anymore. So the fact that we have done good work to improve things, we just haven't gotten anywhere close to the goal we need to get to, which is to make these systems more affordable, to do them on a much faster cycle time, uh, to, to focus on the new emerging technologies. Uh, one of the reasons in, in one of my other hats as chairman of the National Defense Industrial Association, 
we're getting ready to kick off and launch an Emerging Technologies Institute, which is going to be an independent objective organization. We're going to make a huge financial investment because we think these technologies are so important to our country's economic future, not just our military future. And so we want to promote, push the government, push our industry, push our economy. That's the future. And by the way, in these emerging technologies, if you go to Silicon Valley, you know, if you can't get it turned around in, in under a year, you're not going to survive. And so that's the kind of cycle time that we need to basically put into our government procurement system. On Just one more question on acquisition reform, because it seems to me there's kind of two schools of thought on this. One is you do need to do continuous improvement and, and continue to refine the system and get inefficiencies out. On the other hand, if you're reforming the entire system or big chunks of the system in every single NDAA, it sort of becomes you know reform fatigue after a while. And so the thinking along those lines would be maybe give people a few years to have a stable system to work within and learn how to use and learn how to optimize. Do you see a tension there? Well, I do. And I, I think I, I think I lean on the side of reform fatigue. I, I don't think we need to change the whole system. I don't think we need to have massive reform. I think we need to attack the four or five key nodes that everybody knows. First, it's the requirements process. Get rid of the iron majors in the Army that develop requirements. I say facetiously, tongue in cheek, if the U.S. Army could get away with it, they'd want a nuclear powered tank that could fly itself to the battlefield. The, the, the requirements people go plate the requirements without any regard for technical feasibility or cost affordability. So you got to reform that. You've got to reform, you know, the way they do requests for proposals. They always are just looking at the upfront cost. They're not weighting the sustainability cost. Why do people buy reliable automobiles? They cost a little bit more upfront, but guess what? They save fortunes on the maintenance because they never need maintenance. DOD needs to adopt that model. Uh, and there's so many things they can do. You don't need to basically change the, the wiring diagrams or break up R&E or put it back together. And we've got good people. I mean, Heidi Shu that's being nominated and is pending on the Senate calendar for research and engineering, you couldn't get a better person to kick some butts in the Pentagon and push people on technology and others. So it's, again, it's not the people, it's the processes. And so, and we've got we to get better contracting procedures and quicker contracting procedures. We can't have the cycle be that when we develop, I mean, the Ford class carrier, which is not even technically operational yet, has been in process for over 15 years with massive cost overruns. I mean, you can fix that kind of things. You don't need to reorganize the Pentagon or the Congress. And guess what? Congress is broken. It's as broken as the acquisition process. They never get their work done on time. They do the same thing three times a year. They've not paid. We're going to start in a continuing resolution again this year. We'll be lucky to get the defense operation and appropriation bills done by Christmas. And, you know, when's the last time we had 12 uh, annual appropriation bills all done on one October, which comes every year on one October? Um, it's been 25 plus years. And so these things can be fixed. We don't have to reorganize anything. We just have to get people with some backbone, you know, to tackle these tough issues. If Ms. Hsu is confirmed, she's going to be pretty lonely. Um, there's been a dearth of nominees for those uh, political acquisition positions across 
the department. I think there's no nominees for any of the SAEs, nobody for ANS. How big a problem is that? I mean, they're, they're kind of losing time here on, on some of the internal reform possibilities. Well, it's a problem. You, you want to have an administration's political appointees in place as quickly as possible. But look, this is a bigger issue than the Biden administration. With deepest regrets, the, the nomination, the vetting nomination and, a, and confirmation process has been extended since the Kennedy administration. In the Kennedy administration, you pretty much had all your people vetted, nominated, and confirmed in three months. Over the years, it's gone up every couple of administrations by two or three months. So now, for the Trump administration, the tail end of the Obama administration, and for sure the Biden administration, it's going to be at least a year. You know, and so uh, actually, right now, in terms of nominations, Biden is ahead of Obama and also ahead of Trump in the number of people he's nominated. The problem is we've got 10 DOD nominations that have been stuck on the Senate executive calendar uh, since before the July 4th, uh, the, the Memorial Day recess. And there are all kind of holes on them that have nothing to do with the qualifications or the individual. We do have Andrew Hunter now that's been nominated to be the Air Force Acquisition Executive, tremendous nomination. Um, but you're right, pretty much nobody home in the others, even though we have career civil servants who are very capable of serving as acting or performing the duties thereof, as Chairman Reed and as Senator Inhofe and others keep pointing out, they really are things they can't do because they're not political appointees. And guess what? An acting or performing the duties of under Title 10, there are certain statutory things they can't do. So they have to kick those upstairs. And guess what? If you're like in the logistics part of of the OSD and you got to go through two or three layers because there's nobody above you right now. All that stuff gets kicks into Kathleen Hicks's inbox, the Deputy Secretary of Defense. So it's an issue. It's a problem. But the Biden administration, frankly, is no worse off than his predecessors. And what we've got to do is we've got to break the logjam on the Senate calendar where people get held up for no good reason. There were people in the Trump administration that sat on the Senate calendar for over 200 days for no reason other than people just didn't want to, you know, confirm it. Retired Marine Corps Major General Arnold Panaro is with us for this edition of On DOD. We're talking about his new book, The Ever-Shrinking Fighting Force. More of our discussion after another break. This is On DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Servid. Thanks for listening to On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu. As we get back to our conversation with retired Marine Corps Major General Arnold Panaro about his new book, The Ever-Shrinking Fighting Force. As we've been talking about, he thinks there are three main reasons the defense budget isn't going as far as it used to, and congressional dysfunction is at least partly responsible for all three of those. I want to come back to the congressional reform piece later in our conversation because I think it's really interesting. But but I want to wrap up our diagnosis of the problems here and, and tackle the third bucket that we haven't gotten to yet, which is the growing, fully burdened personnel costs. Give folks a sense of, of that particular problem and how quickly it's been growing. Well, first thing where we've got to start is we've got to start with the fact that uh, in, the, in the Vietnam War, as it was coming to an end, President Nixon asked former Secretary of Defense Thomas Gates to look at a commission to study whether or not we ought to keep the draft or go to an all-volunteer force. The draft was so unpopular in the Vietnam War. I speak as someone that in 1968, the peak year of the draft, and all my Marines were draftees, 
um, was so unpopular. And Thomas Gates recommended that we get rid of the draft and go to a volunteer force, which happened in 1973. But he said, Thomas Gates said, if we do this, you've got to change three fundamental things in the Department of Defense or the all-volunteer force over time will not be affordable. One, you've got to get rid of the upper-out promotion system. Two, you've got to get rid of the cliff retirement at 20 years because you want to keep people longer. And three, you've got to go from pay and benefits being based on time and grade and rank to skills and performance being based on. None of those changes were ever made. So towards the end of the 70s, when the volunteer force was about to completely collapse and fail, my boss, Senator Nunn, who joined with the late, great John Warner, put together what was called the Nunn-Warner Benefits Package, essentially to save the volunteer force. And you had to have that done and then. And then, of course, over time, we've had to add a lot of pay and benefits to now the 1% of the American population that actually serves. It used to be a fully burdened, you know, yearly cost for a soldier was $100,000. It's now $400,000. But that's just when they're on duty. Now people, 75% uh, of those that make it to 20 years retire to career year 23 or less. And they, their age 43 is enlisted, average age 45 as an officer. They live till age 85. So we are now paying people for 60 years to serve for 20 years. When it comes to healthcare, the healthcare burden has gone from uh, 20 billion a year to 52 billion dollars a year. 10 million beneficiaries of which 5.6 million are retirees and their dependents. Over 65% of the annual healthcare bill in DOD is for people that are no longer serving. Now, don't get me wrong. People get all frothing at the mouth when you start talking about it. But the bottom line is a very large percentage of the cost now are just like in the social security inversion are going to people that are no longer serving. The GAO has said the all volunteer force costs are not sustainable. Several former secretary of defense have said the same thing. But the problem is the body politic, when it comes to basically dealing with things that relate to pay and benefits, they're very reluctant. And by the way, I've never argued for making any changes retroactively. I think any changes you make, you project them 20 years into the future and you gradually change them over time. That's why they, I call it the ever shrinking fighting force. So for $100 billion more in the budget than we had when Ronald Reagan was president, he had a million more active duty personnel than we have today. So the fact of the matter is, with a $715 billion budget, higher than the highest Reagan budget, we are paying for a million less active duty personnel than we had in the mid to late 80s because of the individual cost of personnel. And so unless we change that equation, then even as the budget goes up, the fighting force is going to continue to shrink. That's the whole thesis of my book. That is one of the craziest things about the cost growth in, in the personnel area is that the growth really is just so concentrated in a relatively small proportion of the overall population. Uh, you guys, I mean, why is this area, you think, so resistant to change? You guys tried to fix it with Redux back in the Goldwater-Nichols era, right? And it right. never saw the light of day because it got repealed before it was ever implemented. Why, why is this so hard to fix? I mean... A former deputy secretary of defense said, Arnold, we've got a, we, the slogan has been changed from praise the Lord and pass the ammunition to praise the Lord and pass the benefits. There are 2.4 million retirees and there are 1.3 million active duty personnel. 
And many of the defense associations that in my early days in the Senate always fought for a strong national defense, they're totally focused on benefits for their people. And so, so the Save Our Benefits crowd basically has a lot of political class and juice. A lot of it's retirees. Look, we've tried to reform the commissaries, not to do away with the benefit. It's a great benefit. And yet the taxpayers subsidize at $1.4 billion a year and their sales keep going down. And so I think it's the, it's the benefits lobbies that have basically kept the Congress uh, from making any changes. You're right. In 86, during the Graham-Rudman-Holling era, when we thought we were going to lose military retirement altogether, the Congress, led by my boss, Senator Nunn, and Chairman Les Aspen on the House side, said, look, we need to put the retirement funds on a fundamentally sound fiscal basis. So we set up an accrual fund. And then we said, we want to keep people longer than 20 years. So we're going to change the formula, grandfathered everybody for 20 years, to get people to stay longer than 20 years. So they'll make more if they stay longer. And the military at the time said, oh, no, the world as we know it will come to an end if you do this. And guess what? For 17 years after that passed, there were no problems recruiting, no problems retaining. And yet about two years before it was to go into effect, General Hugh Shelton and General Chuck Krulak started arguing, oh, my goodness, isn't this awful? There's going to be some people that are going to retire in a couple of years. They're going to get less than the people that retired the day before. And they convinced Congress to basically change it back. So we lost all those savings. Again, for example, I remember in 1979, the military retirement was based on your last day in office, not the high three like civil service. We changed it to a high three, grandfathered everybody for 20 years, and it saves about $2 billion a year. And, and nobody left the military because of it. So it's really, it's by the way, it's the same thing on all the other entitlements. Look. The Defense Department is not causing our deficit. It's the, the growth is in the entitlements. And so, frankly, if we're ever going to get control of our deficits, everything has to be on the table. Entitlements, discretionary spending, and revenues. The argument that's often used to, to retain or, or, in some cases, increase these, these sorts of benefits are that you need it for retention. When you start to look at possibilities for reform in the personnel area, how good is the data that we have as far as what's actually necessary for adequate retention? A lot of studies have been done by this. I don't really think the data is that good because, you know, everybody worries about and wrings their hands on retention. We haven't had retention problems other than with certain skills like pilots or cyber. And frankly, it's silly to think we're going to keep cyber warriors when they can, you know, be trained by the military and go out and triple their salary and still stay in the Guard and Reserve where we have these great cyber units. And so uh, basically, and, and as the force gets smaller and smaller, you don't need to retain as many people. So uh, I, I think a lot of the arguments about, you know, we need benefits for retention, I, I don't buy them. We'll never be able to pay people in the military for the sacrifices they make. And we're silly to think that we can. They're not just motivated by money. Number two, right now, if you look at the pay and benefits, they're ahead of their civilian counterparts, whether you're enlisted or officers. And you look at the retirement benefits, there's no more generous retirement system in the world than, than the U.S. military. You can retire at age 43, you get free health care for you and your family for the rest of your life, and you have an, a, a pension that's indexed for inflation. Uh, and that's why I say we're paying people for 60 to 65 years to serve for 20 years. So a lot of the money is going into the deferred compensation side of the house. It's not going... 
I, I say we ought to give more money to the troops that are serving today. I would focus the pay and benefits on the career force, not on the retired force. Talking with Arnold Pinaro, retired Marine Corps Major General and former staff director of the Senate Armed Services Committee. We're talking about his new book, The Ever-Shrinking Fighting Force. We'll wrap up our conversation after one more break. This is on DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbian. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. A few minutes left with retired Major General Arnold Pinaro, who's just authored a new book called The Ever-Shrinking Fighting Force. It's all about the reasons the share of the defense budget going toward frontline military capabilities has been declining over the last few decades and what to do about it. Um, I want to focus on a couple areas where there really are some at least possible glimmers of progress in, in defense management. One that, that you bring up in the book is the the effort that Secretary Esper during his time launched to try and find efficiencies in the defense agencies and field activities. Probably too early to tell much from what's happened so far, but but what's your observations on that whole effort? Well, I, I, I give a lot of credit to Mark Esper and David Norquist. They tackled an area that, that their previous, their predecessors, basically put in the too hard box. Nobody wanted to ever deal with it. They took it head on. I think they got things going, but we've got to make sure the current crew in the Pentagon and the current crew in Congress follows up on it. Let's just take a simple thing like logistics. The Defense Logistics Agency, one of the largest of the defense agencies and one of the most important of the defense agencies. And don't get me wrong, they try every day to basically be better, but what's the measuring stick for DLA? It ought to be, commercial best practices. And so if you or your family go on to one of the retail online organizations and you're looking for something, you will know right away if that in, if that organization has the product, how much it's going to cost you and when you're going to get it. If you're the tank turret mechanic on the M1A1 Abrams and you order a part, the current system, you don't know whether DLA has it, you don't know how much it costs, and you don't know when you're going to get it. And when you don't get it in two weeks and the company commander says, why is your tank still on deadline? Well, I'm waiting on that part. We'll order it again. Now, don't get me wrong. DLA's made lots of improvements. But the problem is they'll say, well, guess what? We've got the running time down to a month. Well, guess what? In private industry, it's like hours, not months. And so the problem with government is even like defense finance and accounting service. When we looked at this for Secretary Cohen many years ago, it was $12 per person per payroll cycle. And they bragged about, okay, over time, over the last X number of decades, they've got it down to a couple of bucks. And I say, well, yeah, that's progress. But guess what? In the private sector, it costs 10 cents, you know, per person per payroll cycle. So that's my point. We got to do everything in the department better, faster, cheaper than China. We can't measure ourselves looking backwards. Hey, this is what it used to take us to do it in DOD. And we're so much better now because we do it faster than we used to do it. We got to outcycle our adversaries and we ought to be able to match commercial best practices. And these defense agencies are massive, massive organizations. These are not mom and pop shops. Six of the top 10 businesses doing business with DOD are our own defense agencies, not Lockheed, Raytheon, Boeing and people like that. And in a sense, they, they sort of operate like businesses in the sense that they work off of working capital funds in a lot of cases, and they've got to cover their own their, their costs and at least break even. But 
But the way they're not like businesses is that they're all monopolies, right? So just to go back to your DFAS example, could it help if, for example, the Air Force had the ability to choose its payroll provider? They, they could go with DFAS or they could go with USDA or the National Finance Center. I mean, because that, that, that really is the way in which these organizations are not business-like. There is no competition, right? That's correct. And the other thing is, and, and, and I, I always somewhat challenge people when they say they, I said, they, they have these board of advisors, but there, there's nobody on them that ever worked in the business world. They're all government people. And so government people have served in government all their life. They, they have not come across world-class business practices. These are not fiduciary boards. And frankly, being candid, people in government just frankly don't have a good appreciation of the value of time or money because they're not spending their own money. And when you talk about the working capital fund, it's a blank check. So when the when Defense Health Agency overruns its budget, they just go get $2 billion more dollars and Congress has to appropriate more money. And the defense working capital funds are hundreds of billions of dollars. Bob Gates, Secretary Gates talked about this. We gotta get a culture of savings, a culture where people understand that money costs and is valuable and time costs and is valuable, like the business world. And so to me, I've argued that they ought to put civilians in charge of some of these big defense agencies that have performance contracts and that, you know, have the military people be the deputy. Now, Mark Esper did do that with Heidi Grant moving into the defense agency that runs the future foreign military sales, which has always been very bureaucratic. We could do more of that with some of the other defense agencies as well. And, and they ought to bring in boards of directors that come from the business world that can actually help them. Um, you know, be better. Don't get me wrong. It's like I've said, I dedicated my book to the people that work in the Pentagon every day on the Hill in an industry, every single one of them. I guarantee you every head of DLA, every deputy, every director, they come to work every day trying to do the absolute best job they can for the warfighter and the taxpayer, but they're tied brown and strung and ramshackled and straitjacketed by these God awful regulations, rules and processes that we burden the government with that we don't face in the business world. I want to make sure we tackle some pieces of congressional reform before we run out of time here. Um, Congress has a big role here, right? I mean, the, the, right. the layers of bureaucracy that, that you think are excessive are in many cases there by statute. So that's that's one issue. The other is just the annual process, right? And you've got some interesting suggestions for how to change the appropriations, budgeting and authorization process. How would that work in your ideal world? Well, if you'd, if you'd asked me this question in 1970, the mid-70s or late 70s, I would have said, boy, the process is great because we just created the budget committees in 1974 because there was never a single point where you could focus the Congress on, here's how much money we're going to spend, here's how much money is going to be in deficit, here's how much revenue. And that added to the other two processes that were already there, the authorization process and the appropriation process. Now we know none of those processes work. They're totally broken. Congress is doing the same thing, overlapping three times a year, if they ever do it. Uh, we haven't passed a budget resolution in a lot of years. And they're just totally consumed and drowning in budget details. They don't do, for the most part, serious oversight anymore. Congress ought to be focusing on the macro, not the micro. And so to me, I would get rid of the budget committee and I would collapse the authorization and appropriation committees into one committee, I'd authorize and appropriate in the same committee. And then I would have the chairman and ranking of those authorizing combined appropriation committees be the members of the budget committee. And then you would basically 
get rid of like two major cumbersome processes in the Congress, and maybe they would have the opportunity to basically, again, focus more on the big picture and not on the little picture and go to a two-year budget. We did that actually when Senator Nunn was chairman, and it worked for a couple of years, and then once he left, they just threw in the towel. And so they're the ones responsible for deciding how much money for defense, but they ought to be doing it in a timely fashion and in a fashion where they're fully informed on the big blue arrows. We ought to be focused on what we get for what we spend, not how much we spend. The, the two-year budget cycle is is interesting, and I'd like to hear more about that, because you already have the problem, right, of DOD having to build a budget that they're not actually going to execute on for another two years almost, basically, right? So don't you exacerbate that problem by adding another year to that process every other year if you go to a two-year budget cycle? Well, actually, you give, you give them a break, and, and you would have to, you'd have to reform the planning, programming, and budgeting system, or now it's called the planning, program, budgeting, and execution system, if, and by the way, Jack Reed and others are looking at that in the Congress. Bob Work looked at it when he was the Deputy Secretary of Defense. The PPBE is pretty much the same as it was when Robert McNamara and Charlie Hitch put it in place in 1961. The major force programs that they operate around are the same ones that Charlie Hitch designed decades and decades ago, and the threat has changed 10 times since then. So the PPPE needs to be fundamentally reformed and, and it ought to be adjusted from being predictable and compliance oriented to basically being able, it takes, like you said, three years to get a new idea into the budget in the Pentagon. That's ridiculous. And so you've got, when you change the processes in the Congress, you also have to change the budget resource allocation processes in the building. When we did the study for Mark Esper, mandated by the Congress to look at the chief management officer position. And we recommended that they disestablish it because it wasn't working. In fact, it was a hindrance, not a help. We found out that the DOD governance structures were also broken. There's over 50 of them. And, and there's tens of thousands of pages of documents that haven't been updated since 2008. So again, it's these processes that are basically like the kudzu vine that are smothering the Pentagon and smothering the Congress. Michelle Flournoy had a line years ago that she used which in the Pentagon decision process, she called it the tyranny of consensus. And so all the processes now drive it to where everybody and their brother, in other words, if you're waiting for the Metro bus outside the Pentagon, somebody's gonna wanna know your opinion on whether or not we ought to build the ICBM ground-based strategic deterrent. That's how bureaucratic the Pentagon is when it comes to making sure everybody gets their say-so. As Sandy Winnefeld, the former vice chairman, used to say, a thousand people can say no and very few people can say yes. So again, we've got to fundamentally change these processes in the Congress and in the Pentagon. Let's actually end on the in the Pentagon piece since you brought up the CMO disestablishment. As we've talked about before, you really have to have somebody driving change from inside if, if anything's really going to improve here. As far as you can tell, how is the building doing in that CMO replacement process and devolving those authorities? Well, and, and, and as, as someone that recommended in 2008 that we create the CMO and recommended to John McCain and Mac Thornberry in 2018 that we beef it up because it wasn't working like we thought it would work and then had to be the person that chaired the committee that recommended we get rid of it because it fundamentally had not work because the only way it's gonna work in the Pentagon is where the Deputy Secretary of Defense. I would say I'm very encouraged by what I see Dr. Kath Hicks doing in terms of reinstating the deputy 
as the chief operating officer. She has basically put in place a lot of processes that bring, maybe it's not processes, but the decision mechanisms to make these tough decisions in her office where it's supposed to be done. I mean, that job's gotta be a junkyard dog. She also recreated, Norquist did it, and she built on it, the director of administration and management, the mayor of the Pentagon, and convinced Mike Donnelly, probably the more, most capable career, uh, both political and government civil service to come back and help her in this area. So time will tell. And they're moving around, you know, all the things in the CMO that got disestablished. But to me, if the deputy plays the role of chief operating officer and allows the undersecretaries of the military departments to be the chief operating officers in the military departments, then, then I'm encouraged. But I mean, we're only six months into the administration. Uh, they're definitely off to a good start, uh, but only time will tell. But I'm, right now, I'm encouraged. Arnold Panaro is a retired Marine Corps Major General and former Staff Director of the Senate Armed Services Committee. We've been talking about his new book, The Ever-Shrinking Fighting Force. It's available at bookstores now. And if you missed any part of our conversation, we'll post this week's full program at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD. Also, find us in your favorite podcasting app. That's it for this week's edition of On DOD. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Serdu. So long. You've been listening to On DOD on Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.